welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. And each year at this time, with the summer season fully upon us, countless families embark on their traditional summer vacations. And Northern Michigan has been a premier summer destination for nearly 150 years. The two peninsulas, almost completely surrounded by the largest bodies of fresh water in the world that comprise the borders of Michigan, provide abundant natural beauty and endless opportunities for outdoor and water sports activities. While Northern Michigan's historic attractions, including lighthouses, pre-colonial war forts, and secluded islands, including perhaps the most well-known, Mackinac Island, still continue to draw countless visitors from all around the world each season. Bayview, Michigan, consisting of over 400 Victorian cottages and performance halls, autonomously located within the city of Petoskey, has primarily been a Methodist summer community since 1874. And Bayview, to me, represents the very essence of the sense of tradition that seems to have captured the hearts of so many of those that have visited this region and for whom that now annual trek to Northern Michigan has become a must. Joining us for this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past, we have the absolute honor of having second-generation archivist and author of the aesthetically beautiful and definitive book on Bayview's prolific history, Bayview, an American Idea, Mary Jane Dorr. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. How's that for an introduction? Oh, well, I was going to say, I hope I can be as eloquent as you have just been. <laughs> it took me some time. <laughs> Mary, your book was uh, the winner of the 2010 State History Award. Yes. When did you start first coming to Bayview? Um, I started coming in the, in the, as, a tri- as a baby almost in the late 40s. I don't want to date you here. so. <laughs> yeah, but my relatives have been coming to Northern Michigan since 1911. And your mother was also an uh, archivist at Bayview? She was an archivist. I'm not. I'm a writer and historian. I work for the newspaper. You just know more about Bayview than any human being on the face of the earth. <laughs> well, I had the advantage of working for the Petoskey News Review under Ken Winter. And then I interviewed so many interesting people, like Sterling Sanford. And I just had a wealth of information. So um, I decided maybe I should write it. Write and, it. And um, so I did. But I had no idea where I was going or how to do it. And... I had no idea of the total immensity of the history. I know whenever I host a group down in Bayview, and I'll pretty much give them every bit of information I possibly know, and you'll come on board, and it's just like the beginning for them <laughs> when you start telling the, uh, all of the, the connections that come from Bayview. Just, it's, it, the way it kind of spiderwebs out is absolutely amazing. It is amazing. One time I, I had a group, a tour group from Louisiana. And, oh, dear, what am I going to tell them? And then... We drove to Bayview, we stopped at one cottage, and I said, now, I think that you'll identify this one. This is the relatives of Huey Long. And I had absolute silence on the bus. <laughs> they couldn't believe that up here in northern Michigan was a former uh, governor from Louisiana. And, and relatives. The list, yeah, the list goes on and on. I remember uh-huh. the first time I took your tour, I was trying to keep notes. I gave up after about five minutes. I knew it was futile at that point. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, the, uh, Bayview was founded in 1875. That's, there's a couple of dates that are, I'm always kind of slightly confused about. When was it officially founded? It was officially founded in Jackson, Michigan, uh, in 18, November of 1875. The uh, group that founded it had an offer come up here to Petoskey, 
And the GR and I had land, and they wanted to work a deal, and they worked it between Petoskey, the Methodist Episcopal Church of Michigan, and um, the Bayview Campground Association, and the railroad in Petoskey. So the Petoskey citizens um, put up $3,500, purchased the land from the Native American owners, and then the land was put in, or the property was put in escrow at the uh, GRNI headquarters in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The GRNI is the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad. We've heard so much and, about them over past episodes. Yeah, yeah. and they have had a contract to meet certain conditions. And by 1890, they met those conditions, and the property was transferred to the Michigan Campground Association Methodist Episcopal Church. What, what was the first summer that Samuel Knapp came up here? Um, oh, Sam Knapp came in, yeah. He came in early in 74. He bought property on Lake Street, and he had been in the UP, and he mapped the mine on Antinagan, and he laid out the city and the village of Rockland. And that mine was the... Considering the land and the amount of uh, copper they pulled out of it, it was the largest producing mine in uh, UP. And then he sold out his part, came down to Jackson, and he was uh, worked for the Michigan prisons, and he taught the prisoners how to do various trades. And then in 74, he came up here, and he wanted to, uh, to explore possibilities for a camp meeting. And he liked the area just east of Petoskey, and that started the ball rolling. And, of course, the GR and I were running out of business because they had already logged the land, and the, yeah. it was disappearing. So they got a lot of new business. Petoskey had the economic benefit of having these camp meetings every summer. And GNR was really sort of the uh, the re mm -hmm. they, they were really that was the genesis of the reinvention of all of northern Michigan as right. a tourist destination. Was very. It was the um, president of that company that was such an innovator, and so that's how it came about. But it was after the Civil War, and the Civil War had such a devastating effect on everyone, and there was a revival as a result of that. People were heartbroken, families were broken, and um, so they needed some kind of hope for the future, and they came up here, and they and this was an evangelical um, idea, and they were trying to evangelize the people up here, and then, of course, it attracted a lot of attention. At that time, that was like the biggest, um, I don't want to say resurgence of Methodism, but that's when, I mean, how many people joined the Methodist faith during that period? I think in the 100 years from the time, early part of the 1800s, there were like 15,000 Methodists, and then by the end of the century, it had grown to millions, and it was known as America's Church. And it was due to the circuit riders and, of course, these uh, camp meetings. And they were all over the United States, um, something like 10,000. So um, Michigan wanted to get into the ball game too, and this was the first joint venture between the two senates of um, Methodism in Michigan. And after the Civil War, they had split, not over slavery, but over how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so they got together on this venture, and the rest is history. 
what were the early years like at Bayview? I have a, I have a few pictures of you known from our past presentations, oh, yes. and we have women dressed in more clothing than there were in the tents. Originally, it was tents, right? Yes. And an uh, amazing thing is, if you've seen the pictures, they brought everything with them on the train. And chairs, not just little chairs. They brought wooden rockers, pots and pans, babies and diapers, and everything you can even imagine. And they were early birds. They got up, and these women would be dressed in these elaborate clothes at 6 in the morning. <laughs> they and must have been hot. It, well, in the summer, they're covered in seven layers of wool. Uh-huh, right. And you just look at them and say, aren't you dying of heat? And also, there was a problem. They had a, the ground was covered with shintangle, which we don't see of as much of it as anymore, but that made it very difficult to walk. And so what we look at is just a short walk now was a very, very difficult walk then. And part of Bayview, the idea was to leave some of it pristine, right? Some of that land still stands as a natural preserve to this day. Yes. The Eastern Eastern camp meetings had somewhere up, up near a 1,000 members. And it was easier to sustain the organization if you had larger group of people. Bayview had uh, probably by 1885, they had about uh, maybe 130 land lots sold. And that wasn't enough. So that's when they brought in Jadam Hall from Flint. And he instituted the assembly. And that was run after the camp meeting. And the number of cottages is a big resur- resurgence of building in 1887. And the number went to somewhere above 400. And um, pretty much as it is today. Yeah. There's a, there are new cottages, but the restriction is that they built them compatible with the Victorian architecture. Yeah, we have a friend, one of our local artists that represents in my store, uh, Carolyn Chambers. She has a beautiful cottage that looks like it was there for the uh-huh. last 110 years. But... It's beautiful. And that was the restriction they comply. So that some people like to have all amenities, heating, plumbing don't have to redo it. My cottage was built in 1889, and it was renovated in 1907. And yours was the first, after years of living here, yours was the first Bayview cottage I was actually inside of. <laughs> oh, I remember that. That's a and, classic. But, but we have to put in um, new kitchens, electric wiring, and we. Do, I don't have um, insulation in the walls. And that was common, right? This was a summer, primarily a summer resort or, mm-hmm. or summer camp it was all started with with tents and then they wanted something more substantial so they built what they called wooden tents and then those became more and more elaborate you'll see them in um east bayview you'll see those the wooden tents that have been, not been changed they're pretty much as they were built and there were other restrictions here as well right uh-huh uh, like for instance Alcohol is still technically banned on campus, is that right? Mm-mm. No, you can drink No, that, huh? we've given, um, both hotels have liquor licenses. People make a lot of jokes about the WCTU, the uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union under Francis Willard, um, but they've lost the context of which that was started. After the war, the men had been injured, and there were a high number of American uh, men who were addicted to morphine because mm-hmm. that was the only drug they had to kill the pain. And 
so they came home and they were addicted, and the morphine was not available, so they turned to alcohol. We're back to Ernest Hemingway. Right. And alcoholism was the, at the highest rate it's ever been in the United States. So the women were had to raise a family. They had to work. There were no job opportunities for them. The job, job market wasn't open to women. And they had this challenge. Um, and also... The women who were isolated on the farms or away from cities, they were subject to abuse because the men would become so um, intoxicated. So this is the form which uh, started. Now, WCTU started in Chautauqua, New York, and it spread among the Chautauquas and the camp meetings because it was considered safe for the women to come, and they went from camp meeting to camp meeting to talk. It's one place they could speak and make their wishes known. What year did Bayview become a Chautauqua? Bayview was started as camp meeting, and then, like I said, in 1885, they realized they wouldn't be able to sustain it. So um, Jadam Hall was from Flint, and he was head of the Chautauqua movement here in Michigan. And he brought that program to Bayview in 1886. And the, just a little background information on, on the Chautauqua for people that may not be as familiar. It was mm-hmm. built on the pillars, you know, on, on four or five pillars of, of, of thought, right? Uh, well, not exactly. That's more of a contemporary mm-hmm. idea. It um, started as a camp meeting to educate the um, the sex Sunday school teachers who didn't know much about to teach the children. They didn't have a background in biblical studies. So they did that, and then William Rainey Harper was there, and he developed the educational program that involved the three-tiered program of a, of a university, a summer university. And I say that lightly because it wasn't a university. And then there was the platform, the assembly, meetings, and the music. And the third program was the Winter Education Program, which was the magazine. The Chautauqua Magazine was published in New York. Now, Hall copied that three-tiered program in Bayview. And he established it. And the first of all, he had the assembly program. He added summer university classes. And for a country that only had an average education of sixth grade, it was, this was a very desirable. And then in 1893, he established the Bayview Magazine, which reached distribution of about 125000 nationally. And they considered it a, a summer college, in a sense. Weren't you affiliated with with, uh, with Albion College? Yes. Wasn't Bayview affiliated with Albion yes. College? Yes. What happened is we started the first summer school in Michigan, of course. Michigan State, Eastern, all the rest of them soon caught on. We were not the only ones anymore. And then the success was exorbitant in the 1890s. But uh, Hall separated from the association. They had a big fight. <laughs> and he left. And um, it dwindled down. And in 1918, they connected with Albion College. And that was to get accreditation for the college classes. It was the first college credited classes in Michigan, northern Michigan. So it offered the chance for um, teachers to upgrade their skills without having to go downstate. They could stay home with their families. 
I find it interesting that sometimes, uh, you know, Bayview is kind of pigeonholed as this Methodist camp, you know. Uh, but if you look at the curriculum and all of the activities that have happened over the years, Russian classes, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a class or, or a course that would have been taught during those summers about white middle-class uh, people in northern Michigan <laughs> of the Methodist um, faith, right? It was very diverse. Very diverse. Going back just a little bit uh, prior to that, in, in, the, in the early years, of course, this was all Native American land mm-hmm. owned by the Adawas. And after the deals were made for the development of, of Bayview, the early meetings the Adawas would actually attend services here also, right? Yes, they did. Um, there's a picture of Chief Petoskey on the speaker's stand. And there's also a story by Frances Willard in her book about Chief Petoskey. And then also Chief Petoskey's daughter played the pump organ. So she played. And the Indians were very much a part of it. And the extraordinary part that you have to admire is she, is George... Custer's family. I was just going to bring to, that up. Yeah, came to Bayview, and after that horrible battle, they worshipped with the Adawas in Bayview. The irony of of the Custer family worshiping next to the local Native Americans. For those that aren't familiar, there was an event that took place at that time called Little Bighorn in '76. And what happened? Well, one of the major um, leaders of Bayview, Dr. Reverend Shire. He did the funerals for Harry Armstrong Reed and Boston Custer, who were the brothers and nephew of General George Custer. And Harry uh, Reed's father was a member of Bayview until 1906. And he, uh, his wife was Custer's sister. And Custer's other sister was married to one of his lieutenants, um, Calhoun, who was also killed at Little Bighorn. And uh, Maggie was 25 years old. She lost three brothers, her nephew, her husband, and the live, and 25 of her friends lost their husbands that same day. And she had a nervous breakdown. So a lot of the, there was a lot of um, fallout and mm-hmm. and residual um, you know, turmoil and emotions. Yes. Right here um, locally from that. I, Annie Yates was also with them. And she had lost her husband in the battle, and she had a, a young child with Down syndrome, and she ended up at Carlisle in Pennsylvania teaching. And she's buried there with her son. But all of the family experienced terrible trials and tragedy. Annie Yates was killed in New York City because her skirt got caught under the streetcar, and she was killed. And and Maggie Custer was quite a dominant uh, person. She became the librarian for the city for the state of Michigan, and she traveled all over the country. And then she finally remarried, but she got cancer and she refused all treatment. Unbelievable! The Custer family was cursed. Right, and the mother of the whole. She just went to her room in '76 and didn't come out. She just died. And now May Custer, who was the daughter of the oldest brother who was not killed, she took care of the family. And she is, there's a picture of her at this one cottage in Bayview. And yet they all, they all, again, they all came together here in they Bayview, They all came Michigan. together and they worshiped with the Indians, so it was cathartic for them. And that's what I was going to say. You know, it's a little bit of irony and maybe even mutual forgiveness and respect yeah. uh, as, you know, Custer's family were there. Worshiping alongside the you know the Indians as the Adawa tribe prefers to be referenced, they prefer to be called 
mm-hmm. the Little Travers bands of Adawa Indians. Right. And the interesting part is three of our founders spoke Adawa. And as Brockway, Reverend Brockway, he, um, he, he was fluent because he spent 15 years in the UP. His, he and his wife raised 15 orphan Adawa Ojibwe children. So there, his his sons, their first language was Odawa. It was not English, and and then there's Seth Reed. The Indians had a a name for Seth Reed. He was a founder. It was straight up through the sky. He was very tall, and um and they also, a Nap had a working knowledge of Odawa too. Yeah, you wrote uh, at one point uh, the negotiations for the Bayview property were conducted in Adawa mm-hmm. by H.O. Rose. Yes. H.R. Rose, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Judge Charles Palethorpe. Rose, I think, Rose spoke Adawa. And Palethorpe did the legal work. Mm-hmm. Now, his son is famous Dutch because of his friendship with Hemingway. Yeah, we know. We'll talk a little bit about that craziness, too. Yes. In a few yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's really important. One of the reasons Chief Batoski came is because he could, uh, Brockway could, they would converse. And was was Chief Batoski himself involved in the negotiations and the transfer of the lands? He could have been. I don't know. I don't have any direct knowledge of that. His history is a little, you get so many different different stories mm-hmm. about Chief Batoski up here. Mm-hmm. Yes. But his picture is on the, he has a picture of himself on the speaker stand and the story is documented by Francis Willard. So. I have a copy of that picture. Oh, yeah. And the book is hard to get because it's it's a very rare and uh, very expensive if you find one. <laughs> Chief Blackbird was a speaker at Bayview Assembly in 1887? Yes, for the Second Assembly, and he addressed the Assembly. I talked to the author of the recent book on Chief Blackbird, and he said that the people in, there were people in the association who tried to help Blackbird. At that time, he was uh, needing help, everything, and he was older. He had done the negotiations in 1855 for the land, which kept it out of the hands of the American white population in until about 1873. And that's when it opened up, and the other people were able to come in and buy land. But it, up to that point, it belonged to the Adawas. Yeah. I think there was a problem of taxes and problems of that sort. And I always state, too, you know, that Treaty of 1855 and other treaties that gave Native Americans the land that they had previously held anyways. So I think it was a little bit confusing to the average, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Indians. Like, what do you mean I own I own the property? Because in, in their culture, nobody owns the property. Yeah, you just live. Yeah. I had a friend who came up and visited. She was the founder of Michigan Hopper Theater. And Jay Oliver, who is a Native American, took us to see the uh, the council trees mm-hmm. outside of Charlevoix. And she turned to him and she said, Now, Jay, how did you lose the possession of the council trees, which are about 250 years old? He turned to her and he said, Lady, we lost the whole state. <laughs> it wasn't the trees we're concerned about. <laughs> yeah, we lost the whole state. <laughs> you mentioned people coming up here. They, they packed everything because uh, we've talked before. You didn't know if you're... With, even with Telegraph, you didn't know if you were going to have a place to stay when you right. came up here. Mm-hmm. There would be sometimes 1,500 people get off the trains at 9 o'clock at night. And the hotels were, they didn't have hotels, and they didn't have enough food. And the newspapers would beg people to take the, the travelers in. And, and then, of course, people got very wise to that. And there were 15 major hotels in Petoskey 
and something like 3,000 rooming houses. In Bayview, we had um, five major hotels, all with annexes nearby mm-hmm. for overflow. So the majority of the people in Bayview were not owners. They were visitors, and they would come in for a short time. Or... Well, Mary, as we're running out of time, uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Tales of Northern Missions Past. We'd like to invite you back for another episode if you're available. Oh, I'd love it. I, I think it's so important for people to know and understand all of the tremendous history that's taken place in this area. It's phenomenal. Well, we invite you, you, the listeners, to join us next time as we join Mary Jane Dore, author of Bayview, an American Idea, for our next episode.